Today, I'm going to start today's podcast off with a scripture from the Bible. For I have given rest to the weary and joy to the sorrowing. Jeremiah 31, 25. Welcome to today's podcast of the pursuit to healing. Today's episode, we're going to be talking about trauma-informed care. I actually had to hold him on my laugh. Stop, <laughs> leave me alone. The first thing I do is every episode, I just roast Belle at the start of every Thanks, episode. I appreciate but it. Seriously, <laughs> I had to hold him a laughter because I was like, <laughs> sometimes when you panic, it makes me laugh. Anyways, Thanks. I shouldn't laugh at you, but anyway. Anyway, so today we're going to be talking about trauma-informed care. And, you know, when we talk about trauma-informed care, I want you to kind of visualize, you know, moments in your life where you've gone to like a professional, whether it's like a doctor, whether it's a psychologist, well, actually, no, we'll take the psychologist out of that because, you know, they obviously have that understanding of trauma. But sometimes I've had experiences where they haven't been very good at understanding a response to trauma and how that might make me feel. Um, Think about, you know, doctors, dietitians, nutritionists, coaches, um, PTs, anything, like any professional that you work with, like any. And when you work on a, with a professional on a one-on-one basis and um, their understanding of your traumatic experiences and how they impact you in whatever they're helping you with. So, for example, um, if you're seeing a doctor about – I'll give you an example, actually. Today – sorry, Belle, I'm just going on a tangy. Oh, um, today <laughs> I went I spoke to, I spoke to my doctor and I have a massive phobia of needles. Yes, I'm covered in tattoos, but – Needle needles are different, not a vibe. Anyways, I'm terrified of needles. I really need to get a blood test. And let me say the last blood test, actually the only blood test I've ever had in my entire life was in 2017. And I was taking their kicking and screaming. Um, anyways, so I need to get a blood test. I called the doctor today and he's a doctor I've never seen before. And every time I go to a doctor, they say to me, well, you know what? You're just going to have to see a psychologist. You're going to have to start working on that. I've been working on it. I was about to swear and I stopped myself. I've been working on this for years and the blood test for me is one that I'm really struggling to overcome, right? And I spoke to a doctor today and he said to me, oh, you're scared of getting a blood test. Okay. And this is how productive just one conversation that is trauma-informed can actually be. And for me, it was already my anxiety was down because the way he spoke about it, I felt already at ease. And when a doctor, just say, for example, a doctor's already starting with, you know, language, especially language that is going to make you feel an, um, anxious or not at ease, then it's already going to start this whole path of, you know, destruction kind of. So anyways, I spoke to this doctor and the first thing he said to me was, all right, so cool. You've got a phobia of needles. I understand. It must be really scary. Um, let's talk about some options. And as soon as he said, let's talk about some options, I'm like, oh, thank God. I've got a doctor who actually isn't going to just throw, you need to go and do it. Mm-hmm. And the doctor said to me, you know, our options are you can go and we can find you a place that's actually really good at dealing with people with phobias and specific for people with phobias. We can also get you some Valium to make the like make you calm down whilst you're going and getting the blood test. So then you've got both things going at once. You feel at ease. Get the blood test. We'll do a whole screen so you don't have to go back for a long time. Already at ease. Don't get me wrong, I'm going to panic leading up to. But it made me feel comfortable knowing that the doctor was really considerate of my trauma rather than just like, you need to go and do it, I'm sorry, but it is what it is. 
Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about trauma-informed care and how important that is. So when we think about trauma-informed care and trauma-informed practices, we're talking about, you know, all these professionals that work with people in a way um, that could trigger trauma. And we're talking about like, I guess our experiences of, you know, times that our trauma has been triggered because of professionals, but also, I guess, ways that you can also communicate, I think, it's important to communicate your needs and, you know, it's hard sometimes to disclose your trauma, but even when you go to a doctor, they don't ask you like, oh, you know, tell me your history. Do you have traumatic experiences in your life or do you know what I mean, Belle? Like Mm -hmm. you've probably experienced a lot of that too. I'm just remembering all these things that are triggering me right now. (laughs) Yeah, 100%. And you know what? I'll talk. Look, I'll talk to some of my experiences, and we'll let Belle talk to some of her experiences, and we'll kind of mm-hmm. go into it a little bit more. You know, I think that, like for me, I've worked with a lot of professionals, um, and all the professionals I've worked with, there's only very few that have been actually trauma informed. And looking at that, you know, for example, doctors, like using language that is, um, I guess, I could just hear your dog barking in the background. Sorry, I put um, it on mute on the mic, but you know, Wilson decides to go his. You know, looking at doctors, for example, so, you know, I have a massive phobia of going to the doctors that I've only recently like started to feel more comfortable going to the doctor. And you, when you look at a phobia, you look at it stems from somewhere, right? It stems from somewhere. You don't just, you're not born with a phobia. No one's born with a phobia. It stems from something. Now, I had a phobia of doctors because I remember once when I was young, I was probably in grade three or four and I got really sick and I was really sick for about three straight weeks. I remember I went to the zoo, I touched a snake and then I was sick for three weeks. I don't know what I did. I must have touched my mouth or something. I don't remember. Anyways, I went to the doctor and I remember the doctor straight away was like, we need to run all these tests and we need to do all these needles and all these injections and we need to do all of this. And I've got the, you've got this young kid in the room sitting there having a panic attack who's already traumatised, that's now more traumatised. And that's the thing. When you look at trauma-informed care, doctors and, and professionals need to be considerate of that person's trauma history to be able to effectively help that person in a way that's not going to re-traumatise or trigger their trauma because when they are working in a way that is going to trigger their trauma, it's actually going to put the person in a worse opposition. They're either going to avoid, they're either never going to want to see a professional again, or they might just be overcoming a fear of going to that professional. And I could say that one big one, and you might be able to speak to this as well, one big one that you see a lot is, sorry, I had to just readjust. Um, A big one that you see a lot is particularly, I find, is with um, coaches and nutritionists. Mm -hmm. Um, Coaches and nutritionists, you know, I think everyone's gotten to a point now where no one actually trusts doctors, let's be honest. Most people go to the doctor and feel uncomfortable. You'll agree? Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, do you ever go to the doctor and feel at ease? Yeah, very rarely. I think like, a very small handful of times, you know? Yeah, literally. I, I, I don't think I've ever gone to a doctor and gone, oh, yeah, I feel so comfortable here. Unless I'm going for a script and I just need that script. <laughs> Um, you know, I'm just using them. Um, that sounds really awful, but I don't mean it like that. Anyway, yeah, I know you do. Any whom, um, so yeah, nutritionists and dietitians and professional like PTs, coaches, I think is a really big one, is a really, really, really big one because when you're looking at, for example, like someone who's really suffered and you see it a lot with nutritionists and dietitians, 
um, and jump in whenever you want, Belle, because I know that you've experienced yeah. some of this as well. I'm just muting in between because Wilson decided to go crazy, like spitting around. Fine. Yeah, yeah I get so. what he's doing too. Um, so when you really think about it, so for example, um, when you've got like nutritionists and dietitians, like how many times have you gone and seen one and when you see them, they don't really understand like your history of eating disorder. Like I'm saying that, you know, you've got I've had an eating disorder. Yeah. I mean, nearly everybody has at some level. Um, you know, you, they don't ask for a history of eating disorder. They don't ask for a history of your trauma or like, you know, a base, like yeah. just a little bit about your trauma because when you know someone's got trauma, you're more conscious about the way they're going to eat and the way they're going to respond to that, right? Definitely. So I've probably met one dietitian who's actually invested their time in learning about trauma. I don't want to just shout out to her on here because um, she might not be comfortable with that. But there was one nutritionist who told me that she had gone and enrolled herself in trauma-informed training. And I was like, that's insane. I've never heard of a nutritionist actually going and doing that. And I'm working with a coach right now who's probably been the first coach that I've ever worked with that's been conscious of mental health and conscious of panic attacks and anxiety. And most coaches don't even know that stuff or they don't really care. They're just like, oh, man, up and do it. Um, It's not that freaking simple. But anyway, um, do you want to talk a little bit about your experiences, Belle? Well, I I can't really think of any good ones, to be honest, which is quite bad as we're thinking. Um, hmm. I don't know. What about the times that you were in bodybuilding prep? Oh, wow. Okay. Thanks. Yeah, what about just... the... Let's actually talk about those times, Val. You know those okay. times you were in bodybuilding prep? Did you ever feel that a lot of the things that you were doing during your preps, right? So mm-hmm. think about thinking back to your preps. When you were doing those preps, were there certain things where you were doing that you knew were really unhealthy because you had to do them for the prep, but you knew that they were going to trigger your trauma and the person you were working with wasn't very conscious of that? Yeah. So um, I've worked with two different coaches. They're both very different uh, with both different knowledges, but basically um, witnessing in personal firsthand and through my photography clients that are being coached, I notice that like I don't I just that it I don't know how to word it. Basically like if I ask something like um can I what about this or that I've seen this person taking that like now obviously being more informed in the industry, I wouldn't ask those questions, but I was very new to the industry. I don't know like why can't why am I not taking having that rice? Why am I having this rice? Like asking questions um and being shut down like verbally abused almost being like you need to fucking trust me crazy but isn't that crazy see that just that that actually baffles me if someone's asking you for the detail of why they're doing something they want to learn and it's almost like it's either two things either they don't actually know themselves and which I think is a really high probability that some yeah. people just go, yeah, do this. But they don't actually know what the hell they're talking about. Or number two, they're withholding information so you stay with them forever. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of PTs do that. They don't teach you what right or they don't teach you to do things on your own because they want you to stay with them. Yeah. Anyways, continue. So like, I found like when I was on that prep, like the last one, because I found multiple times, and we ended up not actually going to show because my body weight wasn't budging with like four weeks to go and I was prepping for like 10 months it was not a vibe uh for somebody that has gone through like eating um disorders and issues in their early teens um being on a restrictive diet like that for so long 
definitely impacted my eating. Um, it took me, I think, like 12 to 24 months to kind of be able to eat food and not feel guilty. Um, I ended up having really bad eating habits afterwards too. I do. I never grew up eating junk food um, or burgers or donuts, that sort of thing. I ate, I grew up really healthy eating um, natural foods because my dad would grow it for me. But it made me have a really unhealthy relationship with food post being so restricted. Um, and it's been like I don't know, six or seven years now post that that I'm like in a really happy place with how I'm eating. But it's taken so long to get out of that. Um, and even just being in the industry, like back and forth, I'm very anxious of when I'm eating around people from the industry um, for the fear of being judged or like, maybe you shouldn't be eating that because of what you look like thinking that I need to look shredded or ripped um, to be in the industry. But I'm a photographer. I don't want to compete. I'm happy and content not competing. I'm just like I'm eating for my health and nutrition. I don't need to be shredded to be healthy. Um, yeah. And people aren't aware of things they're saying um, that could be triggering for myself or other people that could be nearby listening. Um, yeah, really need to be aware of. And I think there's like ways you can have conversations. Like you can say something like, I don't think anyone should be commenting on what you're eating. I think people should just stay in their own lane and yeah. just, you know, let people eat whatever they want to eat. But like from a professional's perspective, like from, you know, a doctor or whatever, there's a way you can have that conversation without actually triggering someone's trauma. Like, you can have a delicate conversation with someone. I'm not saying you, but I mean, you know, if you've got someone that comes in that's significantly overweight and they're, you know, their health is at risk, you can have a delicate conversation with that person. Like, hey, are you ready to chat about, you know, you, you want to talk a little bit about maybe your your weight and how that might be affecting you or affecting your health? Are you ready to chat about that? Or maybe we can, you know, let's shelf that for another time. Yeah. But so many people just have no idea. They have no idea and they shouldn't be in these roles without some level of understanding of how these things impact people. Mm -hmm. Like it's crazy. And you know what? I look back and there are so many coaches that are like that, like so many coaches, PTs, doctors, like people just have no actual understanding of how how it is to be trauma-informed. And, you know, being trauma-informed means being really conscious of that person and and especially for doctors, doctors like out of anything should understand trauma at some degree, right? Because think about it. A patient goes into the doctor's surgery, just say that person's experiencing, you know, a level of anxiety or um, that person's experiencing health concerns that actually could be related to trauma. And doctors are just quick to go, hey, here's some meds. Let's fix that problem instead of actually going, hey, let's get a history of what's been going on for the last, you know, mm -hmm. two years. Let's get a history of what's going on for the last six months. Let's try to understand what's happening and let's just try and, like, you know, get get at this at a functional level. Let's try and understand this at a functional level rather than let's just go straight to medicating, straight to medicating everything. Mm -hmm. You know, just not a big believer of medicating everything, as people know. Yeah, same get really anxious and then, you know, it comes up to the period time and I'm dying in pain in bed and people are like to me, just take a freaking Nurofen. I'm like, no, I would rather die. No, I wouldn't rather die, but I'd rather mm. suffer in pain. Mm -hmm. Anyways, I'll tell you a little bit of a story actually that happened to me that I didn't think was very trauma informed, but it was at a point of my, at a point of my healing where I was uh, strong enough to fight back. 
So before I got diagnosed with polycystic ovaries, I was carrying an extra, what, maybe 35 kilos than I am now. Mm-hmm. And I was really struggling. Like I've always been a really active and um, I've always been really active. Like the amount of activity that I do now, I've done for the last maybe 15 years, right? Yeah. Oh, not 15. Sorry, that was a lie. Since I was 18 and I'm now 29. So whatever that is, 11 years. Oh. <laughs> Such a big difference, you old fart. Honestly, calm down. You're bitch. You just turned thirty, so I wouldn't. Yeah, I was waiting for you to dig that in and make me feel old. I had to. All right. Belle just turned thirty on uh, Saturday, guys. So you know you could wish her a happy birthday if you like. If if you haven't already wished her a happy birthday, which I reminded a hundred people to do because I was like, nah, this bitch is gonna have a good birthday. (laughs) Um. Anyways, so um. Before I got diagnosed with polycystic ovaries, I was like experiencing a whole bunch of symptoms and I was really struggling with losing weight. So always, always trained, always ate fairly healthy. I'm pretty sure that I was on like something ridiculous, like 1600 calories because I had worked down from like two and a half thousand down to 1600 and I had not lost a single kilo. And I got to the point where I was starting to go, what the fuck is going on? Like, how come I'm not losing weight, right? This is insane. Like something's Mm -hmm. not right. Anyway, so I went and saw a doctor and literally this is how uneducated doctors can be and how uneducated like people can be when it comes to not only trauma but actually like going from a functional perspective, right? Anyway, so um, I went to the doctor and I said to her, look, I'm really struggling to lose weight. I'm experiencing all these types of symptoms. We'd done all this screening at the time and nothing showed up because um, – I don't know, it just didn't show up or she just didn't do the right screening. Anyway, so she turns to me and she's just like, oh, you know what? Why don't you just go and get like a gastric sleeve? Like we can put you on a wait list. Lucky I'm educated enough to actually understand that getting a gastric sleeve is not for me and, you know, some people that may need that to survive, I get that, but it's not your healthiest option. It's probably not very um, – it doesn't have longevity in it either. Mm-hmm. But the first thing was, let's just go and get a gastric sleeve. You know, you just need to be starving to be able to lose weight. Like you need to feel like you're starving. And it was at that moment where I was like, this is just the perfect description of how doctors only have like, what is it? Six weeks of nutritional training. And I actually turned to her and I said to her, like, I'm not getting a gastric sleeve. There is no way. I would rather stay this heavy then get a gastric sleeve mm-hmm. because it makes me very uncomfortable to be malnutrition for the rest of my life it's a no from me and I actually said to her like I've tried all these nutritional things something else is going on like something else is seriously going on and she was like no nothing is I can't see anything so it's you know it just must be you know just eating too much May, I'm eating 1,600 calories a day. I train for three hours a day. Like, what more do you want from me? I physically have no more output. Anyways, so three years passed and literally I met another doctor who did more testing. I'm not going to mention what happened for me to miss my period for 10, 10 months because I'm winning. Mm-hmm. Like um, but anyways... Fun. But, you know, something happened and I didn't get my period for 10 months. Mm -hmm. And then I saw another doctor who was, like, amazing. And she said to me, not getting your period for 10 months, that's not normal. And not being able to lose weight and being always fatigued and losing hair, these things aren't normal. Mm -hmm. And I said, yeah, I know. But, like, my last doctor said that it's there's nothing. She did more testing. After that, more testing, we figured out that I had polycystic ovaries. And since then, I've been able to drop like 35 kilos. 
But it's just like crazy that this doctor didn't even go, oh, you know what, this person might have an eating disorder or this person may have had an eating disorder or talking about, you know, gastric sleeve could be really traumatic for her. There was none of that. There was none of that. And there was no consideration to how, whether, you know, this conversation was affecting me. Nothing. I know lots of people that have had like some really crazy invasive testing done and the doctors have been so rough and, you know, they hurt them and make them uncomfortable. It's just insane, isn't it? Mm-hmm. You just reminded me of something else. Tell me your story if you want to okay. share it. Yeah, I don't really care. I was going to go to aspects of this. Um, so <laughs> I want details, but. Okay, okay, I'm getting that. Okay, so maybe I think it was like four or five years ago, um, my ex-husband and I were trying for a baby and we were trying – I think for like a year to two years. At this point, I was in my early to mid-20s, so yeah, kind of prime age. I was healthy. I'm like, why is this not working? Like, I don't understand. Like, I had extremely painful periods. You're reminding me of, like, all these new things that I can talk about later. Um, and basically, I was like, I don't know what's happening. Like, I just I need to figure it out. And I'm like, the conclusion from most doctors at the time was that I might have endometriosis. So, to have endometriosis, I need to diagnose it by going in and having surgery. Um, and the thing was, is if I could have this surgery um, and if they found anything or not, they would basically, um, it was keyhole in my stomach. They pumped my stomach up, a thing, it was called a laparoscopy. Um, and they would put like blue dye through my fallopian tubes, making sure it was flowing um, and would scrape out any of the endometrial tissue and see if there's any cysts or anything. When they were in there, they didn't find any cysts, but they cleaned everything up. Um, it was a very invasive surgery. When I went to get my um, stitches checked up, she's like basically made it out like it was wasting her time um, to do the surgery and that there was nothing there. And the only reason, like way for me to heal my issues was to go on the pill or have the baby. And I'm like, what the, was the point of this? Because I told you like, I saw you because I'm trying to have a baby. I can't go on the pill and I've been trying to have a baby. Where is this happening? Like it's just. But it seems like the pill's their solution for everything. Mm -hmm. Let's chuck it on the pill. You got pimples on the pill, painful periods on the pill. You're coughing. You're coughing. (laughs) You should go on the pill. I think you need to go on contraceptive because you coughed. You know, honestly, the contraceptive one, that's a topic that we need to have a whole episode on because that do. one burns my soul. Mm-hmm. That one burns me. So we'll have a whole episode yeah. on the contraceptive pill. And um, there's people that would love to join that one. Oh, yeah, we have a few. Um, mm. So from there, I think it was maybe six, eight months down the track, I actually fell pregnant. Thankfully, the only thing that worked was alcohol consumption, um, which <laughs> I don't know how, but it worked. Basically, um, I fell pregnant and I this trigger warning. Yeah. Um, I ended up miscarrying at 11 weeks. So um, I had to see my, my OB gyno at the time. Um, and I was freaking out. This was like my worst nightmare. The thing I was probably scared of the most, like ever, apart from I'm scared of snakes, but I was scared of having a miscarriage and um, a pregnancy loss more than anything because I've been wanting to be a mum since literally I was three years old. Um, being like, mum, you have a baby for me because I want to be a mum. So like, it was like my greatest nightmare. So I was very like triggered and I felt like the, like, the rug has been taken under, um, out under me and it re-triggered all my anxiety, my depression. I was a mess. I was in bed. 
um, and my ex-husband was at work and he just couldn't come with me. So I went to my OB appointment by myself, um, getting told that I need to have surgery to remove uh, the baby from inside me. From at this point, I was like, honestly, in tears, I was distraught. And my OB said, it's only one miscarriage. You'll be fine. I have clients that have had 13. Who even says that? Like, <laughs> who even says that to someone? So this is, and that's the thing, mm-hmm. like, that that leads into, like, another conversation around the way we speak and the language that we use, right? Mm-hmm. And, like, that language is so freaking harmful. Like, oh, your experience is invalidated because someone else's experience is worse. I'm sorry, but that's not how it works. Mm-hmm. But that, that one there burns me too. Like, the language around that, that is just yeah, horrendous. Yeah, I'm so shook. It it wasn't a great time because um, if any listeners have experienced pregnancy or um, miscarriage loss, like it's not a fun time and it's a very different loss to be able to work through. Yep, so you sure. need to be very delicate um, on your response. But in saying that, I think it was maybe two years later, I experienced another miscarriage of twins. Um, and the just the GP I dealt with, was honestly amazing she was so gentle and kind and caring um and understanding and like really patient and fit me in because I had to have emergency like referrals um and was insane like just making me feel so loved and cared because like especially like it's we get taught to kind of keep it to ourselves and not talk about it um, not post that we're pregnant until you hit a certain mark in case you were to get miscarried. But then when you have a miscarriage, you feel so alone. So when doctors are saying like, oh, just one, it doesn't make you feel like very like, hmm. yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah, 100%. And that's the thing I think like that's minimising your experience mm-hmm. and invalidating how you're feeling. So it would be very triggering because if you've already suffered with, you know, not feeling validated as a child, and then you already had your experiences minimised as a child or in any other sort of situation, especially family violence and whatever else, mm-hmm. that's going to be really traumatising. And the language, the language, like, oh, you know, I posted something on Instagram the other day because yeah. this guy posted this pathetic post that was victim shaming. And I'm thinking to myself, this guy, like, is going to burn my soul, right? Sorry, I need to readjust because um, I'm wearing shorts. I'm getting stuck to the chair, guys. Anyway, <laughs> You know what? Everyone that listens to this is probably used to me at this point. Yeah, don't worry. I'm just um, very transparent. Anyway, he posted something that was really victim shaming, pretty much saying, you know, if you're getting abused, you attract abuse. Or if you're experiencing, you know, a bad relationship, it's pretty much because you've put yourself in that relationship. And I think that like when we look at and, and people don't just get into relationships that are always bad. You might meet someone that is fantastic and then takes this really crazy turn within, you know, six weeks or six months or six years. Like people can change, right? The only thing that we know for sure is people can change, situations can change, anything can change, right? Mm -hmm. Anyway, so he posted this thing and it's just like, you know what, the language that people need to use, I feel like people need to be educated on like how we're treating people who are victims, people that are actually victims. Like, you know, for example, like 
maybe a trigger warning, but you know, if yeah. um if someone's experiencing family violence, and then you know, like you probably experienced this, Belle, not, but yeah, you're triggering me, like not badly, but like oh, you're yeah. reminding yeah, me of things. I'm probably going to give you some memories here, but you know, Thanks. when someone's so, sorry, I don't mean it like it's that, but fine. I don't mean actually like vivid memories, but I mean like, you know, when someone says to you, oh you know, my partner's really abusive and my partner's either beating me or my partner's emotionally abusing me or financially abusing me. And someone turns around to them and says, why don't you just leave him? It's like, yeah, sure. Okay, let I me didn't just think go. Of that. I'm, on my, I'm on my way. I didn't think of that one. You I'll know, just pack my suitcase. It's that easy. Hang on, I'm out of here. One thing that we know with family violence is that a person is more at risk when they leave than when they stay. Mm-hmm. So a person that is in a a family violence relationship is at significant harm when they leave the relationship, at significant risk, sorry, when mm. they leave the relationship. So they're sometimes actually safer in the abuser's house than they are leaving the abuser. Because think about it, we lose, what, at least one woman a week to family violence. And it's just like these people need to learn the language around being trauma-informed, right? Like... I'm sorry, but telling mm-hmm. someone that they choose to be abused is the most absurd thing I've ever freaking heard oh. in my life. Yeah. Right? Oh, and I've, sure I've copped that several times. It's I can imagine. It's a beautiful delight to respond to you. And don't get me wrong, sometimes when it's the oldies, you're like, oh, they have no idea. Yeah. But sometimes you're just like, you know, how many times I've told people, I'm like, oh, I'm really anxious. Or I've got anxiety and they're like, there's no such thing as anxiety or there's no such thing as anxiety or, you know, you're not anxious or, you know, it's just in your head. Oh, thank you. I didn't know that. (laughs) Or my favourite, my favourite one is like, I'm panicking about this. And they're like, just do it. You'll be fine. (laughs) Oh, sorry. You just cured me of my anxiety, guys. Thank you. (laughs) I went through a whole week of doing that to you, Belle, didn't I? Yes. Um, it's like, you know, yeah, sure, you just cured me. Thank you so friggin' much. It's not that simple. It's not that simple. No. So I think a keynote that I would like to add here, guys, is when you're talking to people who are actually telling you about their difficult experiences, one of the worst things that you can do is shame them for their experience, minimise them and invalidate them. If someone's coming to you with something that's on their head or something that's on their heart and they just need to talk, the best thing you can do is just listen, express empathy. And if someone actually asks for advice, Ask them, what do you want from me? What do you? What can I do to make this better for you? What can I do to support you? If you want me to give you advice, do you want that advice to be brutal and honest? Do you want that advice to be a little bit more gentle? Ask them, communicate. Yeah. But you know what? Someone that's experiencing some like really like difficult experiences at that time, being harmful isn't going to help unless, you know, you know the person and they love a good, you know, rough conversation like myself, I can handle it. But you know what I mean? Like, yeah. sorry, I went on a bit of a tangent because the language no, one, okay. the language one actually kills me. I actually can't deal with it. It makes me really enraged because like minimizing someone's experience is very triggering for trauma. Yeah. Invalidating them. Like, don't invalidate me. I'm anxious. Let me fucking be anxious, you know? Yeah. I yeah. Lots of scenarios are running through my head about the the comments. One about Tell me one to make me angry. Go. Oh, I'm ready for it. Think. I'm ready for some I'm rage sure I told on a you when this Thursday. Happened. Um about <laughs> I probably so, lost it when you told me too. <laughs> yeah. So um to be quite brief, 
in my marriage, it wasn't a very safe one um, where I experienced a lot of range of abuse that wasn't physical, but emotional, controlling, financial abuse. So um, I was speaking to this one particular person that was a friend that's known me before that relationship and then afterwards. And um, I was explaining a scenario about how I was treated. Um, and they said, you probably did something to deserve nah. to be abused. All right, I need water for my machine gun mouth. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. I think I ran and told you that day. And I was like, I, I don't even know how to respond to that. Because just because it wasn't physical, somebody just like didn't validate that it was abuse. Why do people not do these things to me? Like, I wish that someone would have these conversations with me Babe, so I could reckon, you know? I'm scared of you because, like, <laughs> I was so shook. I don't know how to respond to that. But that's what I mean when you, I guess, when you don't have the words at the time, you don't know how to respond. Actually, I'll tell you about a really crazy experience Babe. that happened to me. And because I'm, you know, a, a crazy bitch, and I'm not crazy, but I know how to speak and I fight for what I need. Yeah. Well, now I do. When I was younger, I didn't. Anyways. Oh, good. So during lockdown, my nonna was really sick, right? She had this really crazy cough and we were like, she didn't want to go to the hospital because she was scared. Mm -hmm. I'm like, all right, let's just call the home doctor. And I called the home doctor, right? And when I called the home doctor, and you know what? I've actually full disassociated from this experience. I completely forgot about it, which is probably a bad thing. But anyway, so we called the home doctor. And at the time, so he came, so he came for her, right, obviously. And I was in the room. Mind you, I was in my pajamas and a baggy ass t-shirt with my hair out here. And I'm not even kidding when I say that. It was locked down. I did nothing but sit in bed. Anyways, so he he came and he was um listening to my grandma's chest. And he's like to me, Oh, come listen. Like I'll show you. Anyways, I don't know why I did it. I was like, sure, I want to listen to this death scope, whatever the freaking how they're called. I'm like, this is cool. Put it on. And then he put his hand on my lower back. And I looked at him and I jumped up and I gave him his thing and I just stepped back. At the time, I was in fight or flight, right? So I was like, mm, actually, sorry, freeze. I was in freeze. I didn't actually have any response. I was just like mortified at what happened. And then he was like, I was like, maybe it was like not unintentional. Anyways, then he started to try and give me his phone number. But, like, to the point where, like, he literally wouldn't leave. Like, he was like, he used to take my phone number, I'll come and check on her later. And then he kept trying to touch me. And then at one point he, like, touched my back and then, like, pressed himself against my leg. And I was just like, what the fuck is happening right now? Like, this guy is literally touching me inappropriately. And literally when I complained about it, I literally complained about it. And the people that were working at the clinic turned around and said, oh, well, sorry, but, um, you know, obviously he's a really nice man and we just don't think that, that actually happened. Okay. Sure. Then I lost it and did a whole bunch of other things that I won't go into. Mm -hmm. But they weren't illegal, by the way, if anyone's wondering. No. They were not illegal. Um, but it's just crazy that these things can happen and people, like, get sexually assaulted or sexually abused or whatever it is. And then there's professionals out there that are full invalidating their experience and minimising everything that happened. And it's like, okay, so how do you get these people to speak up when the moment that they speak up or the moment that they're sharing something, it's like, well, sorry, but we don't believe you. 
or we don't care or your experience isn't, you know, significant enough for us. It's like any experience, any level of trauma, everyone feels trauma differently, right? We're all unique. So the way we experience trauma, the way we feel about something like Belle and I could have the exact same experience and, you know, she could be traumatized from it and I can't. You know, everyone works differently. We all have different responses. So it's crazy to go, you know, her experience is worse. You remember that time, Bella, at the gym and I lost my shit and I don't really give a shit about talking about it on the podcast because I'm going to do it because it made my yeah. blood boil. I won't mention the person's name because they meant well. But there was a person that said to me one day, oh, you know, do you ever like think, you know, that person's traumatic experience, like, you know, suck it up, people have had it worse? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I remember that now. And I looked at Belle and I'm thinking, is this person actually dead, sir? Like, what a, what a dumb question to ask someone who preaches, like, about how trauma impacts people. And he's just like, no one experience is going to be the same for people. No one experience is worse than the other. If you've got trauma, it's trauma. It doesn't matter what trauma it is. If you've experienced trauma, your experience is valid. It is valid. It doesn't matter what level of trauma, what happened to you. It it does matter. But, I mean, it doesn't matter on the level of, oh, my God, is your trauma bad enough? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It happens a lot, right? Mm-hmm. I think we could do a whole episode on the trauma that we witnessed at the gym. Just <laughs> not going to lie. Honestly, that, this I... ages ago. We would have had all the content. Yeah, look, you know, sometimes you meet people, I think because we spend so much time in there, you know, yeah. sometimes you meet some people that have such a good comprehensive understanding and then sometimes you meet pe- and people that, like, aren't even educated on the topic. Like, I've got a friend who's not even educated on the topic and has a full understanding of, of trauma and you think to yourself, it's because this person's got lived experience, they've done some level of reading and they've gone to therapy, but then there are people who are so, like, unconsciously walking through life, like, well, trauma's not that bad. Well, you know, your trauma's not that bad. You you were neglected as a child. You get over it. Um, yeah. Okay, sure. Thanks for curing me of my trauma too. <laughs> you know what? We're going to name this episode, Thanks for Curing Me. Because <laughs> you know what? I love saying that to people when they can just breathe. Oh, thank you. I'm breathing now. That helps that's so much. all I needed. Well, sometimes it does, depending on the person that's telling you to just breathe if you're having a panico. But, yeah, anyway. Um do you want to maybe talk about some strategies that we've used in the past in those sort of situations? But what are your strategies if someone puts you in a <laughs> I love how your eyes went wide. I was like, bro, I need you. <laughs> Layla, she's my strategy. Help her hey, friend. Do, do you know why I'm laughing? Because I feel like I did that on purpose a little. That wasn't very yes. trauma-informed of me. Appreciate but it. But you know what? I love a good banter and I looked at your face and I knew that <laughs> Like, what am I going to say? Yeah, look, you know, I'm Belle's strategy tool. (laughs) She's like, Layla, didn't this happen? What do I do? Yeah, Layla, help me. And then by the time I see my therapist once a month, she's like, you've already spoken to Layla. She's already helped you. Look, Thanks. You're just doing her job for her, you know? Do you know what? It's called a secondary psychologist. I take payment via card and, and um, oh, okay. hey, I do, no, I'm joking. No worries. But seriously, so like I just want to talk a little bit about some strategies before we finish up today's yeah. episode. So I guess some strategies that you could use is that if you are going to a professional and, you know, they haven't asked you questions around your history and there's things that you can't talk about, but there's things that you can talk about, 
I would tell them, I would say to them, look, I just want to communicate my needs because it's really important to communicate your needs because people aren't going to just know, right? People aren't going to go, oh, this person needs this or this. Even in relationships, you can't just expect the person to know your needs and mm-hmm. what you want. So it's really important to communicate that at the beginning. If you're comfortable giving them a history, give them a history. If you're not comfortable giving them a history, just say to them, hey, look, I've experienced a level of trauma. Don't feel really comfortable going into detail. But could you just be conscious of this, this, and that? So it's really important to talk to people and explain to them those things so then you um, they're, they're more aware and they can be more conscious, even though some people will minimise your experiences and to be really, really careful of that um, because sometimes people aren't a safe space to be able to tell your experiences to. Um, but also the other thing I would recommend is actually finding professionals who are actually trauma-informed. Like literally find someone who has experience in trauma because they don't have to be a freaking therapist. They don't have to be a counsellor. They don't have to be a doctor. Like if you're going to, for example, a dietitian, find one that actually understands how trauma affects the body because trauma doesn't just affect your mind and that's it. Trauma affects your behavior, your mind, your body, your health, everything. Yeah. So have someone that understands how they all intertwine and it can really affect everything, like from your freaking gut health to your freaking sleep, everything. Literally so, everything. Yeah. Literally everything. So finding professionals who actually understand trauma and sticking with those professionals. And if things aren't working, and I'm a really bad culprit of this, I used to do this a lot, but now I've got a coach who's actually emotionally mature, so I feel comfortable to communicate these things to. Mm-hmm. In the past, I've had coaches. Sorry, I lied. There was another coach I had that was amazing. I'm still friends with today. But in the past, I would have coaches who would do things and really, really trigger me, and I wouldn't say anything, and I would want to leave them. And I would be so terrified to leave them that I would literally just say to them, hey, I'm going to stop powerlifting or I'm going to stop altogether. And I would literally stop for like three months just because I told them I was going to stop. And then I go and get another one later on down the track who's more suited to me. Yeah. But it's like you should be able to communicate that because you're paying for a service. So, yeah, communicating your needs. You can all go on that journey together. We're still on that journey. Oh, I'm getting there. <laughs> yeah. You Proud know. of you. Thanks. Doing really well with that, Belinda. One little step at a time at, you know, stopping the people-pleasing mentality. We're yeah, people-pleasing is hard, isn't it? Mm-hmm. People-pleasing is one that I really struggle with. People-pleasing and, like, man, that's another episode that we need to I do just, so. just on people-pleasing. Right. Everyone, like, nearly everyone I know does it. Isn't that crazy? I'm just scared to ever upset anybody. So then I just yeah. do things I don't want to do. Do things that make you really upset or angry. Yeah. And you know what? That's a big distinguishing factor, whether it's people-pleasing or actually a love language. is like when it's people-pleasing, it actually makes you feel like crap. Yeah. When it's a love language and something you enjoy, you actually feel like nourished from that experience. Yeah. You know, sometimes like when you cook your partner food or um, you do something for a friend and you feel really happy about it, Mm -hmm. those are like good experiences because they love languages. But then sometimes you go into another thing where you do something for someone just because you feel guilty and then you're like, I really hate myself for doing it, but I don't know how to put up a boundary. Anyways, we'll talk about about boundaries on another episode as well. Gosh, guys. Anyways, that's it for today. I think I'm 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 perspiring and my sweat's got sweat. 
and it's just not, not a vibe today. I feel I you. Think. My little clammy hands over here. It's very hot today. It's so hot that the aircon in this room isn't even working, and I'm yeah. like, I'm sweating. All right, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Hope we didn't ramble too much, and I hope I didn't go on too many. Ta- See, this is already me with people pleasing. See, yeah, you're saying I'm already sorry. apologizing, Why? guys. See, don't worry. Then you'll take a leaf out of my thing and apologize for apologizing. <laughs> sorry for. I'm sorry for. Oh, I love that. Wait, a quick story before we go. My favorite thing is when I say it about something and she'll go, sorry. I'm like, stop saying sorry. And she's like, I'm sorry. And I'm like, All right. It's okay. I love you. It's okay. I'm sorry that you're sorry. <laughs> That's another, you know, difficult topic. But anyway, we'll, okay. we'll, we'll save That's them for another day. Yeah. That's a cute okay. story. All right. Okay. Anyways, I feel like we're getting off the phone. Like, you know, the WOG families where they take 10 years at the door. Bye. Yeah. See you all. See ya. Ah. Okay, see you guys. Well, we'll see you in the next fortnight. Stand <laughs> in front of me. You're mean to me. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>